Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, we'll go to verse 19. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark and he, that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and creeping things that creep on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we are here looking at the, the end of your judgment when you have remembered Noah, help us to see why you have written the text in this way. Pray, Lord, that by your Spirit's power in us that we would have understanding and that Christ would be glorified from beginning to end. Yes, it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you for a moment to imagine life on this ark. And I mean real life, not the children's picture in primary colors with giraffes with their heads poking out and smiling, and happy monkeys hanging out of the windows and everybody just laughing and carrying on. That's not for real, okay? So take, take the real ark. Take, imagine, for those of you with cats, <laughs> the, the weak old smell of a well-used litter box with really big cats. Now mix that with the musty smell of goats and pigs at a horse barn and an elephant barn and that distinct smell of rodents 
and multiply that times 1,000. And remember, there's no air conditioning, there's no fans, there's no electric lights, there's very little ventilation. Now add to that smell, the, the, the gentle rocking of the boat. <laughs> Take in a deep breath. Now let's talk about the work that you do. There are only eight of you, and there are thousands of animals and birds, and all of them need to be fed and cleaned up after, and so the work is nonstop. You've been running it in shifts for several months now. It's especially dark on that lower deck that nobody wants to go down to. You have a torch, you have some oil lamps, but the oil's starting to run out, so you can serve the oil and sometimes when you're down there, the, the rocking of the ark causes you to spill the oil out of the lamp. So oftentimes when you're down there in the bottom, you choose to go at it in the dark. But what that means is that you're chancing it with the snakes and the spiders and the scorpions who often get out of their cages. But that's still better than working on the upper decks with the elephants and the rhinos. The smells are bad, but tolerable. You've gotten used to it. The work at least gives you something to do but it's really the noises, the noises that bother you the most. All day, all night, you hear the barking, the roaring, the groaning, the trumpeting of the animals, and the thousands and thousands of birds. They're cawing and cooing and tweeting and crowing. The noise never, never stops. In exhaustion, when you're finally able to lay down and rest, you can never sleep for more than a few minutes because though you only brought two flies onto the ark, <laughs> there are a lot now because there's a lot of manure. And the noise of the humans is no better. There's always someone reminding you, you don't know when this will end because you don't. Your daughter-in-law your daughters-in-law are complaining about the stale food and how they have little to work with when they're cooking the meals. Your wife is bickering with the daughters-in-law, and to make matters worse, all the wine is gone. <laughs> so you swear the first thing you will do when you get off this ark is plant a vineyard. <laughs> you're alive, and you're thankful that you're alive, but you have no idea how long you're going to be in this giant Nasty, musty, stinking, noisy, floating coffin. And so again, you go to that little, that little window that you've managed to cut out of the hole on the third floor, and you look out over the endless, watery horizon, and you pray a little psalm to God, the same prayer you've prayed every day. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall these waters cover the earth? Well, we don't often think about the ark that way, do we? We don't think about the fact that God never told Noah how long this would take, how long this cleansing of the earth was going to take. For all Noah knew, it could have been just seven days. It could have been seven years or 70 years. The only thing God ever promised him was survival. But you can imagine, here we are at the five-month mark when the waters do not seem to be letting up at all, and it seems that that survival is in question. 
That's why verse 1 of our text, look with me at verse 1. This is such an important part of the narrative. Because you're there in that stinking ark, and you're wondering how long this will be, and look what the Lord does. Genesis 8.1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now, God hasn't forgotten, of course. God doesn't forget things. The only thing he forgets is your sin. He hasn't forgotten Noah. All of this is a part of God's plan of redemption. Every day, I mean, you see the way that Moses has written this for us, and he's marking off the days. These are all important days. These are all scheduled by God. God has not forgotten. He has remembered. And throughout the Scriptures, when we read, God remembered and we'll see this a lot. You'll see in a moment. It's always, it's always from, the, from the believer's perspective. You see the believer in some sort of trial, and God remembers. When it appears that God is absent, we're reminded that God is very much present because He acts in history on behalf of His people. Like I told you, this is the first of many, many times throughout the Bible when we will see, but God remembered. And since this is the first time we see this, every time after this will be an echo of this. This is the first time that God remembered. So every time we read God remembered after this time, after Genesis 8-1, it will be an echo of God's provision for Noah. In, in his time of need. And at the same time, every time we read, and God remembered, it will be a foreshadowing towards God's provision of the Christ in our time of need. So when God remembers his people, he's remembering his promises, like he promised Noah. He's remembering his covenants. He, he made a covenant with Noah. And he's intervening in, in his people's lives in such a way that his mercy is on display, his love for them is on display, his provision for them is on display. So, for instance, as we fast forward through Genesis quickly, in Genesis 19, in Sodom, we will see God remember Abraham and Lot, and he will protect them from destruction. And then you go on to Genesis 30, and God will remember Jacob's wife, Rachel, and he will open her womb and bless her with, with baby Joseph. And then you keep going in, in, in the Pentateuch. And in, in the Exodus, God will see Israel's distress in Egypt. And he will remember his promises to them. Keep going in the book of Numbers. When Moses is instructing Israel, he tells them that when they go into the promised land that they're about to go into, and when they face the enemies that are waiting for them there, look at Numbers 10.9. Then they shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and they, that they may be remembered before the Lord your God, and they shall be saved from their enemies. This isn't the last time God remembers. In the book of Judges, right before he knocks over those pillars and kills all those Philistines, Samson prays that the Lord would remember him and give him strength one last time, and the Lord does. You keep going in 1 Samuel. Hannah prays that the Lord would remember her and open her womb, and he does. Throughout the Bible, these, these moments when God remembers, they are the most pivotal moments in the history of redemption. So it's no mistake that in Luke's gospel, in the passage that Ashley read for us, Mary 
the mother of Jesus is praising God for his what? His remembrance of his people. God remembered his promise to Abraham. He remembers his love for his people. He sent his Messiah to save them. The Lord always remembers. In all of those examples from Noah to Mary, it's clear that the Lord's remembrance is not just something coming to his mind. Like when, when you or I reminisce over the good old days. No, God's remembrance is an ongoing, active display of his love. So if you're wondering, well, does God remember me? Know that even now, if you're in Christ, Christ, the groom of the church, he loves and cherishes the church as his own body. He's died for the church. He nourishes the church. He's sanctifying the church. And because you belong to him, you belong to his body, you belong to his church, yes, he remembers you. So don't think that the trial that you are enduring now is unknown to him. He sees, he knows, and he cares. But listen, the way that Christ cares, the way that the Lord cares for you, may not be quite what you expect. That's what we see here in in Genesis chapter 8. The Lord remembers Noah, and we would expect that all the waters just go down immediately, and everything's all better, and he gets off the ark. That's not what happens. So let's let's keep going as we see the way in which God remembers, because that's what the rest of chapter 8 is. The second part of verse 1 says that in response to God's remembrance of Noah, God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Cause and effect. God remembers, God makes a wind, waters subside. And something you need to know about the Hebrew word for wind here in verse 1. Genesis was written in the Hebrew language and the word that is translated in our Bibles as wind uh, is, is the same word for breath and spirit. So wind, breath, and spirit are all the same word in the Hebrew language. We have something similar in English. You're, if you think that's strange, it's not. Our, our English language is very similar. Think about the word spirit and its relationship to the word breath. So to aspirate, for instance, means to breathe. To expire means to breathe your last. To Inspire means to, to both breathe in and, and for the spirit to be in something. Hebrew is a, is a poetic and often figurative language, so wind is thought of or spoken of as the breath of God, the spirit of God. So, when the wind from God blows across the waters here in verse 2, it is the same phrasing, same, same, same word that we saw back in Genesis 1-2. When the earth was formless and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, which could also be translated the wind of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. See the similarities there? Only this time things are different than they were in Genesis 1-2. Here we are, eight chapters later, seven chapters later. Creation isn't waiting for God's command to spring into being anymore, is it? It's already been created. It's all in place, it's just buried under the water and held in the ark above the water. 
Creation this time is simply waiting for the Spirit of God to, to move and bring about the, the resurrection, as it were. And that's exactly what happens with the Spirit of God. In verse 2, moving across creation, we're going to move forward again, back through the days of creation. So, so last week in chapter 6 and 7, and for those of you who were with us, we saw God's judgment was a decreation of the world, and we moved from day 6 of creation back to day 1. Now the Spirit who brings life and restoration is moving us forward again, back to the new creation from day 1 to day 6. So it begins with the Spirit moving across the waters, which is equivalent to day 1, Genesis 1-2. Genesis 8-2 are sort of like uh, parallel here. Then just as day two of creation, in Genesis 1, was when the waters above and the waters below were separated, look at what happens in verse 2 of our text. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. So, so, so everything is separated again. The, the, the cessation of that flow of water then causes the ark to come to a rest on the, on the tippy top of what to the Israelites was the highest mountain range they knew of. These, these northern mountains north of Israel uh, at the convergence of Iran and Armenia and, and Turkey. And the picture that Moses paints for us here is that the waters are flowing down from that high mountain top, which if we remember, that reminds us of something back in Genesis 2, the four rivers that were flowing out of the mountaintop of Eden, the Garden of Eden. Well, just as on, day th- on the third day of creation, the dry land appeared, after three months of this water running back to where it belongs, the dry land appears again in the new creation. Are you tracking with me? I know I'm kind of skipping around. All right, so Genesis 8, 5, here's, here's the dry land appearing, just as it had on day three of the first creation. Here's the new creation, which is the parallel to day three, verse five. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month, in the 10th month on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So there's the dry land coming up out of the waters as the waters go down. The dry land is coming up, the water is going down, the ark is resting on the mountaintop. And in verse 6, we learn that Noah is up on that mountain for 40 days. Really interesting little insert that Moses has here for us. Who else was on a mountaintop for 40 days? Moses was. Interesting connection. I don't know what to make of it. Let's go on. So we we keep going forward through our creation days. In Genesis 1, on day 4 of creation, God made the sun, moon, and stars. That doesn't need to happen here in Genesis 8 because the sun, moon, and stars never went anywhere. They weren't judged. The earth was judged. So we're going to skip ahead to day 5 of creation. Now, what happened on day 5 of creation? Birds. All right. And the fish. Well, the fish did get bothered by the flood. So we're looking for the birds here. Let's look for the birds. Sure enough, in the next section of our passage, after Noah is on the mountain in the ark for 40 days, here are the birds emerging forth. All right, let me catch my breath. The raven and the dove. Look at 8, 6 through 8. At the end of 40 days, now now just so you know, that 40 days is not the 40 days of rain. You have 40 days of rain, then 150 days, now 40 days just sitting there. So at the end of that 40 days just sitting there, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. All right, what's going on here? (laughs) 
what is going on with the raven and the dove? Why out of every species of bird on this ark that Noah could have chosen for this mission, why these particular birds? And don't just say, well, they're just birds. They're not just birds. I know they're not just birds. If they were just birds, the text would say, and Noah sent out two birds. As a church, we've learned to read the Bible this way, haven't we? As we've studied God's word together, we have learned to read scripture with the awareness that every detail is inspired by the Spirit, every word is intentional, everything has meaning, everything has at least some significance. So when we see something like, very specific, like raven and a dove, we know that means something. Question is, what? Well, just put yourself in in, uh, a Jewish setting for, for a moment. To the Jewish people first reading this, they know that these aren't just two birds. We have, at the very least, to them, an unclean bird and a clean bird. Levitical law says that these scavenger birds, like ravens and vultures, and birds of prey, like hawks and owls, are unclean. That means they're not to be eaten by Jews, who wants to eat them anyway, but they're also not to be used in sacrifices. And then on the other hand, you have the clean birds, the doves and the pigeons and the quails and the pheasants, basically the same birds that that we might want to eat. The Bible considers those clean. They're suitable for human consumption. They're suitable for sacrifice. Well, the unclean bird, the raven, is sent out first, and she is sent out over the waters, and she circles around and around, as the Bible says, going to and fro. And as far as we can tell from the text, she doesn't come back. So what are we to make of this? Moses doesn't tell us. It's a, it's a mystery that is held quietly until the prophet Isaiah expounds on it for us. So, in Isaiah chapter 34, the prophet is talking about a coming worldwide judgment. Judgment of flood, coming worldwide judgment. The Lord is angry with the nations for their persecution of his people, and all the earth is to come under his wrath. So, uh, Isaiah 34, 2, the Lord devotes all the earth to destruction. Very much like Genesis 6 and 7, isn't it? Only this coming judgment is not a flood. This coming judgment is a fire. Well, after this judgment that is coming, this destruction, the cities are destroyed, the nations will be wasteland. And look at the way that Isaiah describes it, Isaiah 34, 11. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. Both of those are unclean animals. The owl and, there she is, the raven shall dwell in it. He, the Lord, shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Over what? Over the wasteland. Now, how does this connect us to Genesis? It's not just the raven. This line of confusion that we see in uh, verse 11 in the Hebrew language is tohu, and the line of emptiness is bohu. And the tohu and bohu belong to the ravens and the owls, the hawks and the porcupines. In other words, the unclean animals, but especially the raven. Now, why am I using this language? Well, if you've been with us, with our Genesis study since Genesis 1, then you know that at the very beginning in Genesis 1, verse 2, what we translate as the earth was formless and void, 
that watery darkness, the formless and void, in the Hebrew was the tohu and the bohu. Remember that? Some of you I know remember it because you've repeated those funny words back to me before. So what's happening is that this raven symbolically is the unclean bird which belongs in the formless and the void, the tohu and the bohu, as Isaiah teaches us, the land of the unclean. All right, so let's bring all these ideas together and let Isaiah teach us about Genesis then. We, we see that God in the flood has judged the people. He's cleansing the land of uncleanness, and the raven tells us that that work is, is not yet complete. The raven has been sent out over the waters because that's where the raven belongs in that tohu and the bohu, the wasteland of judgment. The raven doesn't come back because the ark is the place of God's holy people. The raven, the unclean, belongs out there in the wasteland. All right? So that's, that's, that's the raven. There, God's making a distinction between the unclean wasteland of judgment. That's what the world is. He's making a distinction uh, between that, uh, that place which is unsuitable for God's people and the holy ark of God's protection, which is where his sanctified, set-apart people are. They can't yet go out because that place is still a land of, of uncleanness and judgment. All right, so, so now when the dove is sent out and it comes back to Noah because the land is not yet cleansed, the water has not subsided, and an unclean wasteland is no place for this clean bird that symbolizes Noah and, and, and his family. You see that tenderness between Noah? He sticks out his hand and he brings the bird in. There's this, this tenderness there. It's like his pet in some ways. It belongs with Noah and his family, unlike the unclean raven. And so verse 10 tells us, after this dove returns, that patient Noah waits. He waits seven days to send the dove out again. Now, if it's you or me, what are we doing? Every day. Yeah. It's, is it time to get out of the boat yet? But Noah waits seven days. What's going on here? Told you every word here is significant. We're just going to brush the surface of it. Well, there's two reasons why seven days is significant here. The first is that these seven-day increments in which Noah is sending out the bird are symbolic of creation's beginning. Because remember, creation was, was six days in creation, seventh day rest. Right, so this is Noah recognizing a new creation is coming. He's waiting in these seven-day new creation increments. The second reason, though, has more to do with, with later on in the law the seventh-day increments points us forward to the book of Leviticus and about how things are made clean. The earth is unclean. It's being washed by God, being made clean again. In Leviticus, priests must go through a cleansing before they can go into the tabernacle. And how long is their cleansing period? Seven days. A woman is not clean until seven days after she has bled or seven days after she has given birth. A leper is not clean until seven days after he is healed. A diseased house or a house that has some, someone was sick in isn't cleansed until seven days of cleaning work. You see what's happening? Leviticus is 
kind of echoing Noah, Moses, the writer of both of them, is pointing forward to Leviticus. Noah, of course, we know this. He doesn't have those Levitical laws given to him, but he does know that creation was six days plus the day of rest. So, so patient Noah, righteous Noah, who walks with the Lord, he sends his dove out in step with the, the rhythms of God's creation. And Moses is pointing out to his people, look, even Noah was waiting these seven-day periods. God's law is built into creation. So seven days after the dove returns the first time, she's sent out again. This time she comes back with the olive leaf. We see that in verse 11. And it's at this point, I'm thinking, and this is, I want to get off the boat already, okay? So if, if you're wondering how I'm reading this text, I'm seeing, okay, dove comes back, olive leaf, the waters have subsided, creation is being restored, that the trees are growing, they're so healthy now, they've begun to sprout leaves, it's time to go, right? You're looking for your sledgehammer, time to take the roof off, bust a hole in the side of the ark, let's go home. And so from, from our point of view, Noah and his family can leave the ark because the earth is, is safe, the earth is habitable. But verse 11 says even, even Noah knew that, Noah knew that the waters had subsided, and yet, even though the earth appears ready for, from a human standpoint, Noah doesn't leave the ark, does he? It's just another seven-day waiting period. Verse 12, he waited another seven days, sent forth the dove again. This time, the dove doesn't return back to him. And remember, what is the dove? The dove is the symbol of ritual, cleanness, the symbol of God's spirit, the symbol of God's people, the, the one whose name, I didn't tell you this earlier, the dove in Hebrew, the name actually even sounds like Noah's name. The dove has found a place out there in the new creation. The, the earth must be cleansed now. It's a good place for the dove to make a nest. There's trees there now. We know that for sure. And it seems like now, okay, now Noah, you can get off the ark, right? This is a, this is a sign. Time to leave. And yet, as we keep going through the text, Noah does not leave the ark. Instead, he takes the roof off. Why did you do that already? Well, he was waiting for this sign. Verse 13, in the 601st year, in the first month, first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Okay, so now as far as he can see, Noah's looking out over the ark. He's on a mountaintop. He can see a long way. I'm imagining a clear day here from the way that Moses has written this for us. The face of the ground is dry. The Spirit of God has blown across the waters. He's restored creation. Everything is new. It's the first day of the year. What better day to start? A New Year's resolution. Let's get off the ark. Let's go make our sacrifice, kick things off, and plant that vineyard. But Noah does not get off the ark. Do you see that? I want you to put yourself in the situation again. You, you have arrived at your destination. So just imagine a five-hour car ride. Let's make it simpler. Five-hour car ride. You've been sitting in that car for a long time. You arrive, you pull into the driveway, and now imagine if someone just locks the doors and won't let you out. <laughs> it just sounds terrible. I'm the type that when I roll up to a destination, ask my kids, I am simultaneously unbuckling the seatbelt, turning off the engine, and getting out of the car. 
There is no delay. Why wait? When we're there, we're there. Let's go. But as I watch Noah, he's just sitting there waiting. And every, every American fiber of my being is screaming, get off the ark, man. You've got things to do. You've got gardens to plant and houses to build. Get those animals on their way. And there's Noah, who knows the earth is habitable now. The text told us he knows the waters have subsided. He knows the ground is dry. He can see it with his own eyes, and he waits. What's he waiting for? What is Noah waiting for? He's waiting on the word of God. I want you to see this. Noah trusts God's word more than his own eyes. He's listening for the Lord. He's not rushing ahead, trying to control everything on his own. He knows that the Lord is in control. He's waiting on the Lord's word. He knows that the promise of the coming restoration is true because he can see it. With his own eyes, he can see it. But the sight of that new creation doesn't doesn't form in, in Noah an impulse to seize it all for himself, does it? No, the sight of the new creation only reminds Noah of God's faithfulness. And because God has been faithful, Noah continues to trust him. He continues to trust in the Lord's timing. He's waiting on the word of the Lord. Our impulse, or I should say my impulse, I don't want to speak for you, but I know some of you, so I know some of you have this impulse, is to see that the land is habitable, to bust aside in the hole, in the side of the ark, a hole in the side of the ark, go out into the world and start to make things happen. And boy, we can rationalize that, can't we? Oh, the Protestant work ethic. And though this is normal for our culture, let me just show you what we're seeing here. What, what we think as normal, that, that ambition, that desire for control, that is actually a faithless, prideful, sinful impulse. It comes from a place in our own hearts that says, I am in control. I can fix this situation. I can make this happen. And as you read the scriptures, you read, that's not a good impulse. Think of Sarai and Abraham just a few chapters from now. What do they do? Rather than waiting on the Lord, they hurry up and do it their own way, and it doesn't go well. Keep going into Leviticus, and you have Nadab and Abihu. They will go before the Lord at the tabernacle to make an offering to worship the Lord. Is that a good thing? Yes, it's good to worship the Lord. But the the way that they light the fire is not the way that God had commanded. And if you know the story, them doing it their own way outside of God's command does not go well for them. The fire of the Lord consumes them. Think of King Saul. Later on, rather than waiting on the Lord's prophet to make a sacrifice, is making a sacrifice good? Yes. Is worshiping the Lord good? Yes. King Saul wants to do it his own way. In his own rush, his ambition to get things done, what happens? He loses his kingship. 
This is a common tale in the Bible. Rushing ahead without God's command, and it never goes well. The biblical model is obedience through faith from beginning to end. So in Deuteronomy, when the Lord is sending his people into the land, he tells them again and again, do all that I command you, nothing more and nothing less. Look at Deuteronomy 4.2. You shall not add to the word that I command you. Now, if Noah had gone out of the boat early, he would have been adding to the Lord's command. The Lord said, go in the boat. He didn't say go out of the boat yet, so Noah's staying in the boat. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Noah's the example there. He didn't go in until the Lord said go in. He's not leaving until the Lord says go out. After he received the instruction from God about the ark and the animals, Genesis 6.22 says, Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him, which is to say he didn't do anything less than God's commands. And in Genesis 7.5, it's repeated, and Noah did this, all that the Lord had commanded him. Again, nothing less than 100% obedience to God. And then in 7.16, we read, And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut them in. And here we are in chapter 8. Noah is continuing in total obedience to the Lord. He does nothing less than God has commanded. He does nothing more than God commands him. Now, there are a few things we learn from this as Christians, this side of the cross. The first thing, looking back, we can see way back there at the time of the flood, God God was reestablishing his earthly kingdom where he would have the Lord reigning over all and his chosen king ruling in obedience to God. In the beginning, like we saw last week, all of creation lived and breathed and moved at the command of God. That went awry with humanity's sin. God is reestablishing that original kingdom on the earth. Secondly, though, ultimately, this points us to Christ, doesn't it? Are you, are you seeing some shadows of Christ here with Noah? Though the Lord is beginning again with Noah, Noah is still a sinner. We'll see that next week and again and again. And as a sinner, he cannot establish God's heavenly kingdom on earth. The sin nature can't do that. In other words, Noah is not the Messiah. He's only a shadow of the Christ who is to come. Noah shows us the kind of obedience that God requires. But as with every other sinner, Noah will fail in perfect obedience. That perfect obedience will not come until the Son of God comes. And he comes in human form. Jesus Christ, we'll see, is the new and better Noah. Dustin, we need to write another verse. Okay? Like Noah, Jesus only did and said what the Lord commanded him. Nothing more, nothing less. Therefore, because Jesus is God's perfect representative, to obey and follow Jesus for us is to obey and follow God. So, so look at the way that, that Jesus obeyed God perfectly. John 5, 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, which is Jesus, can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. 
like a mirror image of God. Everything the Father does, the Son does. And then in John 12, Jesus says, even the words that I speak are just the words that God has told me to speak. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So Jesus only did what God commanded, and he only said what God commanded, nothing more and nothing less. He was and is the new and better Noah. So from Noah's obedience, we see that God is reestablishing his kingdom. It's the model that Israel is to later follow as they go into the land, but that true kingdom of God ultimately won't be fulfilled until Jesus Christ comes. And we could end there, but I'm not going to. The lesson from this is not only that Christ is the obedient king of the long-awaited kingdom. That is certainly the point of the Bible. That is the big flashing point of the Bible, but there's more that God has for us. The Bible doesn't end with the Gospel of John. It keeps going. The church is living in Christ's kingdom, so we have lessons still to learn as citizens of Christ's kingdom from all of Scripture. As Noah waited on the Word of God, and as Jesus Christ only did what the Lord commanded him, nothing more, nothing less, so too should we, as followers of Christ, wait on God and do what He commands. And I know you're thinking right now, okay, well, God doesn't speak to me the way that He spoke to Noah and Jesus. And that's true. And if He does, then you can preach next week, right? We do not have the audible voice of God telling us what to do for our careers or when to move or whether we should move at all or, or who to marry or whether we should lead a discipleship group or join one or who to invite to church or who to invite to our homes. God's not whispering in our ears telling us what to say. And yet we do have the Word of God. And we have it in a way far more complete than Noah did. In that year, when Noah was on the boat, Noah endured the silence of God all the way up until God commanded him to get off the boat. God is not silent for us. The Scriptures tell us the will of God for our lives. And just as with God's instruction to Israel, we ought not go beyond what God has commanded, and we ought not do less than what God has commanded. The Scriptures tell us who to marry. They actually do. Marry a Christian. And the Scriptures tell us who not to marry. Don't marry a non-Christian. And they tell us what marriage should look like. Right? Ephesians chapter 5. And the Scriptures tell us how we ought to work, work for the glory of God, and, and how to live wherever it is that we do live. The Scriptures tell us how to live in Christ, how to gather as a church, how to worship, what we should do in worship. The Scriptures tell us how to love one another. The Word of God even tells us what to say. Did you know that? Colossians three fifteen through 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. What is God's will for your life? That. It's simple. So no, we don't have God telling us when to get off the ark. We're not on an ark. But God has told us all that we need from Him in His Word. So if you are desperately staying up night after night trying to know the will of God for your life, you can begin by obeying the Spirit's call, first of all, to submit your life to King Jesus. And follow that up with reading and meditating on the Word of God so that you may know how to honor Him with your life. And if you're doing that, you're going to be too busy to be wondering about other things. Now, let's, let, let's finish our text. Then I told you we'd go to verse 19. So we have been, just to kind of get us back to where we were before I went, went off on, on Noah's patience, my impatience, uh, we've been standing on what is the equivalent of day five. So the birds have been sent out. Uh, the, the birds are back in creation, which is like day five of the first creation. And we're waiting for day six of creation to arrive when the beasts and the people walk around the earth. All right? And it takes several months for this to happen, but it, it eventually comes. Noah waited on the word of the Lord to come to him. And when it came, the new creation was complete. Look at verse 15. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. There it is, the long-awaited command. Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all of the flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, which is everything. He's saying everything. Everything on the ark goes off the ark, and they are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There's the command that we've been waiting for. Will Noah obey it? Yes and amen. Verse 18. Noah went out. So Noah went out, which is to say, in response to God's word, Noah obeyed. And his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. And everything else, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, they all went out by families from the ark. And there's this neat, tidy picture, isn't there? It's not, you know, they're off the ark and now they're warring with one another. No, they stay in their families and they, they go on their way. So here we are now, this is the new sixth day. The day when God made the land animals and the humans. The new creation is complete. And this new creation, at least for now, on the first day of the new creation, is obedient to the Lord. They are led by a righteous king who has been shown the grace of God, who only does, so far, what God commands Nothing less and nothing more. And the Lord God is ruling over the new creation through his chosen one. And our question then as we're reading this is, will it last? It won't. But Christ does. Let's praise him.